thanks to your name this morning. As we still ourselves before your holiness, the greatness of who you are, creator of all the universe, designer of all living things, crafter of the heart and the mind, the spirit, you who are the eternal one who has created eternal things. Who chose to make man eternal. To give us a spirit that would live. Father, you are truly an awesome and amazing God. We fear you and we love you and we praise you. And we gather because we want to know more of you, Father. To learn of your word and your ways. And it's our prayer this morning that you will touch us. Father, while you deal with big and vast eternal things, we deal with minute and temporary and earthly things. And in our flesh, that can be so frustrating. That can be so distracting. As Jim was sharing in, the, in that wonderful story you included in your word of Mary and Martha. There's so many things, little piddly things, Father, that we focus on that just don't matter. Well, this morning we stop to focus on you. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will do your work among us. You'll continue to change us. Continue to mold us after the Father's will to conform us to the image of Christ. That we might be a people who are pleasing to you and loving to the world around us. People who truly care about the things that you care about. And want to invest our lives and our hearts into the greater eternal things. Father, I pray this morning you would begin removing any barriers in our lives that will keep us or are keeping us from the eternal things, the things that matter. God, thank you for the power of your Spirit. And we pray your Spirit will lead us and guide us and teach us now. In the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray together. Amen. Well, Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell down on his face to the earth. He bowed down and he said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was shut tightly because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. 
You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Israel is a postage stamp in the Middle East. If you can imagine a large manila envelope and a tiny little 34 cent or 30, whatever the cost of a stamp is today, 37 cents, it'll be 40 before long. Little stamp up there in the corner, there's Israel. Which is amazing to watch the nations of the world fight over this little piece of property, divide up this little piece of property, this tiny little spot. It's roughly the size of New Jersey in America today. Israel. But at ground level, it's a different story. And if you ever have the opportunity to visit there, you will see so. To stand in the hills of Judea and look over a vast plain of mountains. To stand in Masada, up high above the Dead Sea, and look to the, to the right and to the left, to the north and to the south, and to see the vast expanse, it can be overwhelming. And the children of Israel, having just crossed the Jordan River, are gathered together at Gilgal, and they're looking over a vast land. Remember, this is a people that was just roughly, well, 40 years ago, slaves in Egypt. And now, after a wandering season in the wilderness, after a couple of skirmishes where they were victorious, they now stand looking over an entire land. It's expansive, the mountains are rugged, and there are seven hostile nations that inhabit that land. And of these seven nations, everyone has to be taken down before the Israelites can settle and rest and receive completely the promises of God. Davis and Wickholm, in their commentary, Israel, wrote the following, While there must have been an air of rejoicing and thanksgiving, there probably was also considerable concern about the future of this expedition. They had not really encountered the enemy up to this point. Before them lay the walled city of Jericho, which is with its imposing defensive systems. The real test still lay ahead. For to enter the land and to begin to fight against the peoples living there, they had to first travel south from Gilgal, down to Jericho, and take out this massive city, this stronghold, seemingly against the promises of God. The archaeologists back in the 30s discovered Jericho. There's the first dig at that time. And another dig came along in about the 1950s. The site is called Tel Es Sultan. And it revealed that there are two walls, not just one. There was an inner wall, 12 feet thick, and an outer wall, 6 feet thick. Now, they're not sure if those walls were built at the same time. If there was just one wall at the time that Israel came against them, or two, it may have been one that was built earlier and fell, and then when the people of, of Canaan came in and, and rebuilt Jericho, they built up that second wall. But the evidence is that whatever the, the building was, those walls had fallen flat. Those walls were waylaid. The evidence shows that they were flattened due to possibly an earthquake in connection with a great fire, which lines up perfectly with Scripture. Joshua is there now, and he's looking over the land, and he's wondering, how in the world is this going to be done? Imagine the responsibility, the weight on Joshua's shoulders. As he stands there at Gilgal, looking down at Jericho and thinking, how? <laughs> how are we going to do this? How are we going to take this fortified city? And as I processed this and read through it, I began to think, that is so similar to us. Have you ever been there, standing at Gilgal? Oh, I'm not talking about literal Gilgal. 
But standing in a place in your life where you're looking at a wall and it's insurmountable. How in the world am I going to get over this? Satan loves to put up walls. He loves barriers. Anything he can do to stand between you and the promises that God has for you. Anything he can do to dispel the hope you have in the future. If he can make today hard enough, tomorrow looks impossible to get to. Walls. How do I get through? It's too much for me. Obstructions to the future. Barriers to family relationships. Barricades between parents and children and wives and husbands and brothers and sisters and friends. Ways that seem impassable and even overwhelming. If you've ever felt that way, then you know exactly how Joshua felt. You may remember an old song, if you ever went to Sunday school as a kid, about Joshua. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, which is simply not the case. Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. A better way to put it is to say that Joshua faced the battle of Jericho. He faced it. He didn't fight it. Hebrews 11.30 tells us, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. And it's funny to hear how commentators and and archaeologists try to make up for this idea that these walls fell down. Well, they marched around for seven days, and and then when they blew their horn, the, the, the sonic blast from the horn and the shout was so loud it caused these walls to crumble. And there was just a coincidental earthquake at the time Israel was marching around the walls. Something else must have happened. They try and come up with natural explanations for a supernatural phenomenon, but the Bible is very clear what happened. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith. So not a matter of fighting. And I'll tell you, in our lives, gang, it is not a matter of fighting to bring down the walls. It is a matter of faithing that brings down the walls. We've been working with a definition of faith recently here. Does anybody remember what it is? Faith is... Taking. Okay, repeat after me because you got to get this down. Faith is taking possession. Faith is taking possession of the promises of God. Say that loudly. Faith is taking possession of the promises of God. One more time. Faith is taking possession of the promises of God. God has promises for every one of our lives. Promises in Scripture that He's laid out. Truths that we know will come to pass. But also personal, specific things that He wants to do and will do in your life. And I know many of you sit there and think, well, no, not my life. Other people's lives, yeah, but not mine. Because the walls are too big and I can't see around them. Joshua faced the walls with faith and the walls came tumbling down. Not because he fought them, but because he had faith. How did Joshua get there, though? Because he didn't just, this wasn't just a a magnificent man who somehow had the faith that I could never achieve. He was a man just like us. And recognize that throughout Scripture, every human being you run into in all the stories are people just like you, just like me. Because they lived in a different time makes no difference. They were just human beings who had no idea how they were going to take Jericho, how they were going to take hold of the promises, how they were going to get into the land. They didn't know. They didn't know what they were doing. And as Joshua stood there at Gilgal, he must have been wondering, how is this possible? What am I going to do? What kind of strategies can can I lay out? The story's wonderful. Because the Lord didn't leave Joshua to his own devices. I want to give you three simple things this morning, very simple things to consider when it comes to faith in your life. And one thing I'll say about faith, it's not a magical thing that some people have and other people don't. Anybody can have faith. 
And if you're struggling, you say, well, I just don't have faith. Here are some ways to develop faith. Very simple ways that the Lord gives us that anybody can walk in. We take the lead of Joshua and the first one is very simply this. Submit to the Lord wholeheartedly. Submit to the Lord. Just submit to the Lord. Joshua's looking down toward Jericho and he's wondering what he's going to do and he sees something, actually someone standing there. Verse 13, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. And I love that. I have the no circled in my Bible. His answer to, to a question, an either or question, was no. I'm not for you. And I'm not for your adversaries. I'm just for myself. Joshua sees the man with the sword drawn, and there's something curious about him, so he goes up to him, and he wants to know, whose side are you on? Who are you fighting for? Who are you with here? Are you for us or for our adversaries? Nope, says the man. Joshua, it's not am I for you, it's are you for me. For you see, Joshua here is now finding himself face to face with, and listen, I'm absolutely convinced of this, face to face with Jesus Christ. The captain of the Lord's host. Wait a minute, Rick, Jesus doesn't show up until the New Testament, does he? Well, if you've been studying through the Bible so far with us, you know he's already shown up several times. Jesus is the manifestation of God in the flesh. That's what the Bible tells us. And there are several times in the Old Testament where Jesus shows up, where God comes in the flesh. Where do you get that? Look at verse 14 going on. He says, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell down on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? Verse 15, The captain of the Lord's host said, Joshua, said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Does that sound familiar to you? Who did that happen to before? Moses. Moses is standing at the burning bush. And what is it that God said to Moses at the burning bush? Remove your sandals from your feet. The place you're standing on. It's holy ground. Exodus chapter 3 verse 4. It tells us the story when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Which is often what biblical characters say when God calls to them. Here I am. Then he says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Verse 14 of Exodus chapter 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And ever since that time, God claimed sole authority over that name. What name? I am. God said, that's my name. I am not I was, not I will be, I am. God is always present tense. Which means He is always exactly where you are. Not trailing behind, not out there ahead, forgetting about you. Always where you are. God is I am. But why do you call this captain of the Lord's host Jesus? It's a Christophany. An Old Testament appearance of Jesus, of, of God in the flesh who we know is personified in the word become flesh. John 1.18 says no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus has explained Him. Jesus has shown Him to us, has revealed Him. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. John 8.56, and this is the one that's the final clue that should really key you into who Joshua is talking to here. 
Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Actually, there's an argument going on. They're arguing. He's just teaching. And Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham saw Jesus? Yeah. And there's passages in Genesis you can check out for that. Genesis 15, right around there. Abraham saw Jesus. You say, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. What we pointed out before is not just bad grammar on Jesus' part. It was claiming the name. When God said to Moses, I am that I am, Jesus now says to the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious stuff shirts, He says, I am that I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. I existed. I've always been. And so this captain of the Lord's host tells Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet. Joshua, by the way, is bowing down and worshiping. He's worshiping. By the way, this captain of the Lord's host, it's interesting to me that the group of angels who showed up at Jesus' birth were called a host. Showing up for the captain's birth there in Bethlehem. But Joshua's initial question was simply the wrong question. It's never supposed to be, Lord, are you with me or not? The question is, am I with the Lord? Am I for the Lord? Am I about what He's doing? Not, God, are you about what I'm doing? God, are you interested in my designs, in my plans? God, are you going to involve yourself in my life? No, it's how can my life be involved in your plans, in what you want to do, Father? Am I with the Lord? And Joshua picks that up in short order. He hits the ground to worship. And by the way, no angel is ever allowed to accept the worship of a man. The Bible's clear about that. Hebrews 1.14 Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Last night we were over the D'Angelo's watching the, the game, which Seattle did win, and I don't care that they won by one point. They won. That's the point. It's whoever ends up at the end of the day with the most points wins. Did you see that game, by the way? The last, like, ten minutes was just... <laughs> it was just a heart attack. But it was great. So our boys got one more chance here. Anyway, we were over there, and, and Penelope had pulled out a calendar that she got. And if you've seen, maybe you've seen the, the painting of, of uh, Jesus, and, he, and he's holding a man, and the man is just disheveled and falling apart, and, and it's this, this great kind of famous painting now of Jesus holding this man up. And as you flip through it, the same painter has painted different pictures um, representing Jesus throughout the year. And there was one picture opened up, and I just loved it. And I called Hayden down to take a look at it, because it was a picture of a small child in bed, tucked in at night, and this massive, studly angel. See, I like studly angels, because that's biblical. This angel with these great wings, and this solid, you know, set jaw, and his head, in his hand there's a flame of fire, and he's standing over the kid, and his wings are over the bed. And it's great, and I called Hayden to look at it, because many times at night when Hayden is afraid, we say, Hayden, the Bible tells us you have a guardian angel, who is right here. So I called him down, and I said, see this angel? That's who's standing over you. He looks something like this, and Hayden's like, that's cool. <laughs> Guardian angels are just ministering spirits. People get confused about that in our world. They're not greater than us. As a matter of fact, Paul says in one place that you will judge the angels. Which is a fascinating concept and a study for another time. But Revelation 19 verse 10 tells us John is talking to an angel and he fell at his feet to worship the angel. And the angel said to him, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Do you hold the testimony of Jesus this morning? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Then guess what? You are on a par with the angels. 
They're co-servants. They're fellow servants of the Lord with you. And the angel said to John, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And this is key. Absolutely key. If you want to see the walls come down in your life, whatever that wall may be for you, we must first understand there is only one right side. There's only one right side. It's not me against you or us against them. And we really miss this. Not just in life, but in church. I'm right, he's wrong. I'm on the right side, he's on the wrong. No. There's one right side. It's the Lord's side. That is the only right side. The rest of us are just scurrying around trying to figure that out. And when we learn that and understand it, you know how much conflict will just go right out the door in our relationships? When we realize it's not about me being right and you being wrong. It's about all of us following the Lord. And if we're all facing that direction, we're not going to have time to face off with each other, are we? God is right. When there are problems in a marriage or in a family, in a church, even in a country, we immediately assume, don't we, that we're the good guys. We assume we're right because we're America. We assume we're right because we're the bridge. We assume we're right because I'm the husband. (laughs) I've learned that that typically means I'm wrong. Again, another story for another time. The other side is always wrong and we tend to or easily slip into the mode of being a victim. And by the way, let me just give you this as a side note. One of the most damaging things to a life of faith is the mentality of a victim. If you are one of those who walks around saying, woe is me, you are damaging your own faith. It is so hard to grow in a faith in the Lord when all you can think about is how hard things are on me. How everybody's rough on me. How it's all, I'm always the one who gets beat up here. The victim mentality. Gang, there has only been one victim in the entire history of the world. One true victim and that's Jesus Christ. Every one of the rest of us, whether we've been victimized or not, are not innocent. Now I'm not saying we deserve sometimes the abuse or brutality of this world. But I am saying this, there's not a single person who is ever innocent except for Jesus. He's the only true victim. The rest of us need to have our faith in Him. Ephesians 6.12 says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Which means if I get in an argument with you, guess what? I've got to remember that. My struggle is not with flesh and blood. This is not a Rick and Eric problem. This is a spiritual battle, and the moment Eric and I recognize that, our relationship is better for it. Because the battle isn't between us. Between those who are trying to cause dissension among us. And Eric and I are fine. At least I think we're good. We're okay. (laughs) Revelation 15.4 says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That's a key line. You alone are holy, Lord. And I'm not. So I'm not right. And I'm not on the right side unless I'm on God's side. Submit to the Lord. Because He alone is right. How do I submit my conflict to the Lord? I like this. It's been said that prayer is not giving God my orders. Prayer is reporting for duty. Prayer is coming before the Lord and saying, What do you have today, Father? What is on your plate? What are my commands? What would you have me do, Lord? You tell me and I will follow. C.S. Lewis said, I don't pray to change God. I pray to change me. It is my prayer that my prayers are about changing me and conforming me into His image and into His will. Now listen, and I fully believe this. As prayer goes, God gives His best to those who leave the choice up to Him. 
And this is important because in Christianity there's a tendency to kind of go one of two ways. Either I'm going to pray God's will or I'm going to pray my will. And if my faith is strong enough for my will, my will will be done. Now you know I believe God will bless and He does want to hear your will and He does call you to bring your requests before Him. However, the most powerful prayer you can pray is Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, Luke twenty-two forty-two. not my will, but yours be done. Whatever that may be. If you're suffering with cancer, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You're struggling with a relationship that's broken. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Struggling in a marriage. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus said in John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And the key phrase there is not anything. The key phrase is in my name. If you ask in my name. If you're concerned about the things I'm concerned about, that's the idea. Praying His will, not your will, not my will. Psalm 37, verse 5. Verse 4 and 5. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. Why will God give you the desires of your heart if you delight in the Lord? Because if you delight in the Lord, the desires of your heart are His desires. His will. Submitting to His will over and above my own. Joshua got it. And by the way, later on, on about day 5 or day 6, as the people have been marching around this city and going home every day, someone had to ask Joshua, and we don't have this in the Bible, so I'm just kind of guessing here, but somebody had to ask Joshua, are you sure this is the strategy? Are you positive of the plan? This is a little strange. Who was in the tent when you and the generals worked this one out? And Joshua could very easily answer, It's not my plan. I'm just taking orders. I'm just doing what I was told to do. Galatians 1.10 Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Submit yourself to the Lord completely, wholeheartedly. Ask Him His will. Secondly, um, we see Joshua submitted himself to the Lord, and we know this because he fully expected the outcome to be in their favor. But secondly, you might jot this down, submit yourself to the Lord. Number two, receive the promise completely. What are you talking about? Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut tightly because of the sons of Israel. No one went in and no one, no one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. There's an important word here used by the captain of the Lord's host that Joshua heard loud and clear. And the word is Nathan. Nathan. Nathan in the Hebrew means I have given. Again, that's another word I've got underlined with with heavy black pen. See, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's a done deal. They haven't lifted a single sword. They haven't blown a single trumpet. They haven't even marched a single step. And God says, I've given it to you. It's all yours. That's a promise. It's a prophetic certainty. It's an absolute in the Lord. It is absolutely done. And you listen to this. Taking possession of the promises of God sounds stirring. It's a nice little phrase to memorize and think through. But practically speaking, taking possession of the promises of God requires confidence that the promises have been given. That the promises are certain. 
Hebrews 11.1, 1, a verse many of you are very familiar with, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's how we know Joshua had faith. He was assured of what he hoped for. Convicted of what he did not see. The walls were standing when God said, I've given you victory. See, I've already given it to you. And over the king and all the valiant war. You got it. You're done. You finished. You won. The battle is over. And once Joshua heard that message, he believed it was sure. And he never questioned the strategy. He never questioned the method or the plan. He just followed. Look over quickly at verse 20 of chapter 6. It says, So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. But here's the key. The people shouted before the wall fell down. Not after. It wasn't a shout of cheer and rejoicing. It was a shout of certainty before the wall came down. Because they believed the message. They believed the Lord had, would do what He said He would do. Part of the reason I think they believed is they had just crossed the Jordan River. They just seen that miracle. And they were ready for the next one. They were right on track to believe what they had heard and what the Lord had told them. Psalm 47 verse 1 says, Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. The psalm doesn't say, Ring your hands, all you people. And shout to God with a voice of doubt. And there's something that's kind of gone around in Christianity the last few years. Kind of a hip Christianity. And that's what I would call the coolness of doubt. Christians wanting to alleviate our sense of doubt or feel like it's okay saying, no, it's cool to doubt God. It's great to question the Lord. You need to doubt the Father. And my encouragement to you is maybe we're a little bit off on that. Maybe rather than doubting God, maybe we need to step back and just believe Him and trust that what He says is true and that His Word is sound. And whether I see it or not, I will believe that He does what He says He is going to do. That's faith. Receive the promise completely before it comes to pass. And I'm not talking about something that's not mine. I am taking possession of something God has already given. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And we've seen this verse before, but I remind you again, it tells us He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I haven't seen the heavenly places yet but so sure so certain is God's promise that he sees me as already there the job is done in fact turn in your Bibles just for a moment to Ephesians chapter 3 Ephesians chapter 3 the very end of the chapter verse 20 Paul says something that you need to get in your mind in your hearts I'm going to read this to you, but I'm going to read it to you progressively and just listen to how this works. Ephesians 3.20. It's not up there on the board behind me because I just thought of this. So just go with me. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Watch this. Listen. Now to him who is able. To him who is able to do. To him who is able to do far more. To him who is able to do far more abundantly 
Listen closely how it grows here. To him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond. To him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask. You can't even ask enough that the Lord isn't able to do far more beyond all that you ask. And then he adds this little caveat. Or think. That word or think in some translations is translated imagine. Beyond anything you can ask or even conceive of according to the power that works within us to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. His promises are sound and solid. And we can't even imagine what God has planned for us if we'll believe Him. If we will receive the promise completely. In other words, the Lord would say to you and to me this morning, you're already there. It's a done deal. Even the one-time barrier between my perishable flesh and all eternity is already fallen. That wall is down. Jesus crushed that wall at Calvary's cross. And because of that, we are saved. Now listen. Do you think that if God can bust down the wall between my sin and salvation, if God can bust down the wall between my temporary flesh and my eternal spirit, If he can bust down the separating wall between me and him, is it possible that our little temporary walls and problems are too big for him? Are my relationship issues too big for the Lord? Are my financial strains and struggles too much for the Father? Is a marriage situation too much for God to reverse and heal? Our walls, guys, are nothing like the walls Jesus has already taken down. He can take down the walls. Satan loves to build them up. God loves to kick them over. And he's good at that. Faith assumes that our little distracting walls are coming down even when they stand before us. Even when they seem huge, we assume somehow, some way, God is going to knock that wall down. And so we submit to him and we receive the promise ahead of time. The Lord would say, take possession of what you already have, which is forgiveness and grace and salvation. The Spirit of the living God at work in you. Take possession of this. The power to live with faith over circumstance. And by the way, when I'm living with that kind of assurance, I will not be hindered by all these other piddly little walls that might rise in my path or in my relationships. I'm forgiven, so I can forgive. I am graced. So I can be gracious. I'm loved. So I can love. I am seen by the Lord as righteous. So I know everything's going to be alright. Now, maybe you've submitted your life to the Lord. Even your situation to the Lord. And maybe you've received the promises. You have the certainty. You're sure. But you're still facing a mammoth wall of a broken relationship. And this last point, gang, is vital Not to mention hopeful for all of us. Look at verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. And you shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city, not one time, but seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. One of, uh, of all the great battle strategies in history, 
There is a single word that I think describes this strategy very well, and that's ludicrous. Ridiculous. I mean, for Joshua to hear this, now granted, he's talking to the captain of the Lord's host. He knows he's in the presence of holiness here. So you take God at his word, as strange as it sounds. But truly, to put this down on paper and say, here's how we're going to win this war. We're going to march around the city. Day one, we're going to go around to Jericho, march around once, wave, and go home. Day two, we're going to do it again. Day three, this time, we're going to march around the city. Then we're going to go home. But listen, on day four, we're going to march around the city. Then we're going to go home. Now day five, it gets really interesting because we're going to march around the city and then go home. Day six, march around the city and go home. Day seven, here's the day. This is the day where we're going to take the city. We're going to march around it seven times. Then we're going to blow the trumpets. Then we're going to shout. And the walls will fall down. Right. Right. It's just, it's crazy. It's ludicrous. Can you even imagine Joshua explaining this to the generals and the colonels? Trying to get this word across to them in a way that they can understand? Could I just, uh, can we go over this just one more time? Because I'm missing something here. It is so ridiculous and yet it's so simple and I still have to ask the question even today. We know the outcome, the walls fell. But today I ask the question still, why? I mean, God, you could have knocked the walls down while they were crossing the Jordan. He could have done. He could have sent lightning to smash the walls and break them apart. And in goes this. Why the six days of marching around the city, and then on the seventh day, seven times around the city? Why does he do this? Because God's primary concern was not the taking of Jericho. God's primary concern was the development of the faith of the Jewish people. God's primary concern was teaching the people. To do number three in your notes. You submit to the Lord. You receive the promises. But number three, wait for the wall to fall. Wait patiently. Before the moment of divine intervention, there is almost always a season of helplessness. And you may be in it right now. You may be in that season of helplessness going, Lord, I have prayed and I have prayed and I have prayed and I see no relief and I can't get over this barrier. This wall, this time, it's too high. And you wonder, as the children of Israel had to wonder as they marched around the city, why is it taking so long? Why do we have to do this for six days? Why does it keep taking time? And think about this, with every day that the Israeli, Israelite army marched around that wall, it must have seemed bigger and thicker and more insurmountable, more problematic with each step. And I'm talking about the little buck private there in the army. I'm not talking about the guys who talk to Joshua and really understand that you know, he was told by the captain of the Lord's host. I'm talking about the little peon guy with his sword and his shield. He's marching around the city. He's just going, what am I doing? Look how big this is. This is impossible. God gave the children of Israel seven days worth of impossibility before he destroyed the wall. Before it came down. And He will do the same with us. When a relationship is stuck in the mud, there's a problem we can't work out. And every time I come back to it, it just seems bigger. It just seems worse. It's exactly what the Lord wants. Huh? He wants the problem to seem harder? Absolutely, because remember, God is interested in teaching us what's called the lingua franca of eternity. That is the language of faith. The common language of eternity, the language of heaven, is faith. 
And haven't you noticed that it's in your moments of helplessness when you tend to cry out the most to the Lord? That's what He wants. It's when we are struggling and, and hurting and don't have the answers that we're going to God and saying, Help me, Lord. I, got, I have nowhere else to turn. I've tried everything else and it didn't work. Father, I come to you because you're my last hope. And God says, as soon as that phrase, last hope, becomes only hope, we're good to go. Because God is our only hope. So stop banging your head against the wall and confess this simple phrase, Lord, I can't solve this problem. It's too big. It's too high for me. I can't get over this. I can't scale this wall. And that's when God tends to act. That's what he waits for. Why does he do this? Patience for the moment. For as we go round and round, the Lord is developing our faith right up to the moment of the miraculous so that when the miraculous happens, when we get over that wall, when the wall falls down, we can say one thing and one thing only, Hallelujah, it's the Lord. It's really not me. I didn't come up with the solution. God did it. Praise his name. Because it truly is all about Him. The waiting reveals unequivocally that God alone has the power. One more verse to to flip to quickly. Isaiah chapter 40. It's a familiar one. Isaiah chapter 40. And verse 28. I'm going to go ahead and start reading. If if you're not quite there, just catch up. Isaiah 40 verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That key word there, verse 31, is wait, which is also translated, by the way, It's kavah in the Hebrew, expectantly hope for. Hoping with expectation. I may not see it now. I may not see it. I may not know how. But I know the wall is coming down. Why? Because God has promised to get me to the other side. I know He will do it because He's promised to do it. Broken relationship, I know it can be restored because God wants it restored. So I submit myself to the Lord. I begin to pray to Him about that. I receive the promise that He wants a restored relationship if that's what's broken, if that's where the wall is. And finally, I wait. And I wait, and I wait, and I wait. And if it's six days or six months or six years, I wait for the Lord to act in His time when He's ready, when it's right to Him. Now, Jericho is one thing. This big physical wall in front of Israel. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs 18:19 that a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Maybe you felt this way too. Man, I'd rather face a wall like Jericho than deal with the relationship problem that I've got to deal with today. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. But it's interesting to me. And think this through. They marched around that city for six days. And then on the seventh day, they marched seven times around that city. And Peter came to Jesus, Matthew 18, 21, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter thought he was being magnanimous. Seven times. I'm going to use Jesus' number. He uses that number seven a lot. I'm not sure why really, but I'm going to use it. Seven times. 
Do I forgive him? And Jesus said, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Okay, so 490. That's how many times I forgive. 491, he's out on his ear, and I'm done forgiving. (laughs) Gang, Israel marched around for six days, and on the seventh day, the battle was completed. Why 70 times seven? Until the work of the Lord is completed in that relationship, you forgive. Until the work of the Lord is completed in that contention, you forgive. You wait, and you wait, and you wait until the completion of the Lord. Because on the seventh day, at the seventh time around, with the seventh trumpet blast, the work of the Lord was complete. It was done. And that number seven is that number of completion in the Bible. Gang, i got to tell you, my personal experience in ministry is that I have offended many people over the years. And chances are, give me some time and I'll offend one of you. It's impossible not to offend people. Especially when you're doing a job like I get to do. And I don't say that as a victim. It just happens. You don't mean it to. But when it happens, I have tried in the past to take down those walls with my own power and my own timing. And I'm amazed at how often I just make it worse. I have discovered when I try to defend myself, I end up offending all the more. And so in this, over the years, trying to figure out how do you, how do you pastor with, with all these different people and all these different needs and, and all these different possible ways that you can offend, and trust me, there are plenty, how do you deal with all that? And the answer is very simple. You wait on the Lord. You wait for Him to fix it. You wait for Him to make things right. And you know what? He does. I have gotten so much peace in that over the years, in this whole idea of simply waiting. Waiting. Oh yes, submitting to the Lord, receiving the promises, spending that time in prayer, but waiting for the wall to fall. Again, Hebrews 11.30 tells us, by faith the walls of Jericho came down. By faith. 1 John 5.4 tells us, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. So submit it to the Lord. Receive the promise. And wait. And it could be a matter of hours or days or months. It could be years. I'm reminded of Jacob and Esau. The division of their relationship, it took 20 years before those two brothers came back together. Wait for it. And the Lord will fulfill His promise. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We love You so much because You are so patient with us. Because you wait for us to come around. Because you have given us time and time and time again your forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, that you will teach us like you to be people who wait. People who offer forgiveness, who extend a hand of grace. But who submit ourselves and our lives to you. And simply trust that you will bring about the desired result. The right result. Father, deepen our faith. Increase our faith. Holy Spirit, would you just be so active in our lives that you would retrain our thinking. Lord, away from that victim mentality, away from the mentality that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Father, we choose today to stand with the captain of the Lord's host. We choose to be on your side, Lord. And pray that you will reveal to us exactly what that means. Fathers, we pray this morning, I know there are some broken relationships here. I know there are some hurting people. And I know there are some walls that seem insurmountable. 
And I pray, Lord, that in your time those walls will come down. But in the meantime, deepen our faith. Comfort us, Father, as we wait. And teach us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.